Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen your host for today's show. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Beth Tai about her new book, Taiwan New Cinema at Film Festivals. This book is published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. Taiwan New Cinema has a unique history regarding film festivals, particularly in the way these films are circulated at major European film festivals. It shares a common formulas concerned about cinematic modernism with its Western counterparts, departing from previous modes of filmmaking that were preoccupied with nostalgically romanticizing China's image. Through utilizing in-depth case studies of films by Taiwan-based directors, such as Cai Mingliang, Zhao Deying, and Hou Xiaoxian, Beth Tsai discusses how Taiwan new cinema represents a struggling configuration of the nation, brought forth by Taiwan's multi-layered colonial and post-colonial histories. Taiwan New Cinema and Film Festivals presents the conditions that have led to the production of a national cinema, branding the auteur and examine shifting representations of cultural identity in the context of globalization. So this is a brief introduction about the book. Now let's hear it from the author. Welcome to the show, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so uh, we're so happy to have you today to talk about your new book. But before that, we want to know a little bit about you. So Beth, can you introduce yourself to our audience, maybe your research interest and anything you would like us to know? Yes, absolutely. So again, my name is Beth Tsai. I'm currently a visiting assistant professor in film studies program at SUNY Albany, which is in upstate New York, above Manhattan. I have published journal articles and book chapters in Japanese horror films. That was a, a long time ago, but I did uh, cover that. Um, and I have most of my research has been centering around Taiwan cinema and film festivals. But also, I am um, at core a world cinema specialist. So I also uh, covered Agnes Barda and um, Bong Joon-ho, which is an article I co-authored with Bonnie Tillin, and that's going to come out. Um, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure by the time that this episode is going to be published. And at um, SUNY Albany, I teach both theory classes that includes film history. Uh, film movements type of classes, but also I cover film production class, um, such as experimental film and video. So I, I do have a background in experimental filmmaking, and I enjoy doing both theory and also film production. All right, sounds good. And thank you for introducing yourself. And also, uh, our next question is, so how do you start this book project? 
so I always have to tell the story where the seminal idea was planted during a course that I took at NYU. The course is called The Paradigm of Globalization with uh, Professor Dong Dong Choi. And the class that inspired me to write my dissertation, which is, again, very similar to my book, uh, that's the, the core of what my book is based on. And it was in the meeting with Zhong Bong that he suggested, if I'm interested in exploring about Taiwan cinema and, and Taiwanese identity and information of it, um, film festival is something that hasn't been explored enough at its time. And also, so we're looking at, you know, both the circulation, but also reception of these films. But at the same time, the goal was to unpack transnational cinema and transnationalism, which was part of what this class was about, even though it has globalization in the title. And um, it is also very important because it was during the time where there was so much hype around uh, the concept of transnationalism. And I'm referring to, I took a class in 2011. That was a long time ago. But it was a time when I recall, for example, at a collection called World Cinema's Transnational Perspectives, edited by Natasha Dirubikova and Kathleen Newman. This book came out in 2010, and it was also the same year that the journal, uh, the inaugural journal of transnational cinemas, now called Transnational Screens, uh, came out. The discourse of uh, transnational cinema, and especially transnational Chinese cinemas, people would also acknowledge uh, Sheldon Liu, whose book was published in 1997. So all... I'm saying is, is in context, that was the background of uh, the course I took, the conversation I had with um, the professor, but also really using um, these case studies that I have outlined in my book uh, to tackle transnationalism at large. But at the same time, you know, we have also moved on to the second phase or uh, maybe the third phase of, we're not simply just trying to define what is transnational cinema and, and you know, and, and competing with the definitions and aesthetics and, and practices of world cinema, but rather we're, we're looking at, um, we're approaching it both as a methodology, also a framework uh, of looking at these cultural objects. So that was the seminal idea. But I also wanted to mention how I actually get to write the book because it's been a while, unlike most scholars who typically their first monograph was based on their dissertation. Um, yes, there, there are many chapters that overlap, but there, are, there is also um, new materials that wasn't a, a one-to-one exact transplant of what I wrote during my doctoral program. So I graduated in 2017, but you know, the book came out, the book just came out now. So that means there is a gap in between. And I haven't really given too much thought about writing turning my dissertation into a book-length project until COVID-19. And I mentioned this because I was very grateful for my women's writing group during a time. And also I was just very fortunate that during the lockdown period, it was the most productive period for me ever. I always thought I was a slow writer, but during that time, um, I guess there's not really much to do except teaching online. And so I wrote 
my proposal fairly quickly. I put together the proposal really quickly and, you know, everything just went through um, in a very smooth manner. And yeah. And yeah, that's so, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, thank you, Beth, for sharing uh, these uh, that the, the the process and journey about writing this book. Especially, you mentioned this kind of transnational context, and also the the uh, the COVID is part of this uh, <laughs> book as well. And uh, so, with that, so uh, this book is about Taiwan new cinema. But before we can talk about Taiwan new cinema, so we have this word new here, mm-hmm. I was wondering whether you can just tell us a little bit about the Taiwan cinema, the landscape of it in general. So especially the post-war uh, cinema, what it looks like before it become a new one. Yeah, absolutely. So I've also had um, the pleasure and the opportunities to teach an entire course just on Taiwan new cinema in my at my previous institution at UC Cinebarra. I would often offer this so, so apologies to other Taiwan cinema specialists out there and make it repetitive to the to the general listeners. So we would if we try to explain and look at the general history of Taiwan cinema, um, people would trace it back all the way to during the Japanese colonial era, um, the first documentary the first film that was ever made was during that period, and that was also a documentary or an actuality type of films. And then we move on to the golden age of Taiwanese cinema, or called Taiyupian, which is based on the language they use uh, was Taiwanese dialect, or Taiyu, which is different from Mandarin, the official language of the country. And we call it the golden age because it was at one point, most films that were produced per year. And that was during approximately between 1955 to the 1980s. Um, The peak would probably be around 1950s and 1960s. And then the next stage, uh, people would often um, recognize a healthy realism which was produced by the Central Motion Picture, the, the state-owned, the nationalist film production company, uh, which can be seen as propaganda or at least with a specific agenda that's outlined in these films and these production. And around the same time, shortly or, or slightly after healthy realism, people would all also recognize the melodrama of the 1970s. And especially we have this interesting term called the street escapism rooms, or Santin Ing. The, the three rooms are the living room, restaurant, and coffee shop, because that's where the stories tend to take place. And the East melodramas, I would argue, um, they are in a way similar to Italian white telephone films of the 1930s. The films, they're, they're called tel- white telephone films because they also often feature um, a telephone. So it's either you know people picking up the phones or, or speaking to other people. That's their communication line of communication, again, in the living room. <laughs> And then we would move on to this new wave period, which is Taiwanese cinema between the 1980s to early 1990s. Or if we wanted to be specific, some would argue that the Taiwanese cinema 
the movement happened between 1982 to 1987 after the manifesto came out. And then the second wave would be the 1990s as represented by um, Anli or Temiao. And what we can, you know, we're, we're going to circle back to this, of course, because that's the title of my book. And then after Taiwanese cinema, um, many would also appreciate Wei Shen's Kate number seven that came out in 2008 as this um, defining moment, but also, you know, pulling away from the new cinema art house type of drive and ambitions and going into a revival of commercial or commercially viable genre films that a popular cinema in, in a sense that, that that's more catering to the general public's interest. And, and in terms of looking at the divide of a history, people would often call this period the post-2008. And in, in many ways, yeah, we have, we're now seeing a lot more diverse genre films that are readily and easily accessible worldwide um, via Netflix and other streaming platforms. So I often have students who came to me and, and you know, if they've never seen a Taiwanese film before, but they, they stumbled across one, they would, you know, happily came over and talk to me after class and said, oh, have you seen this film on Netflix, this and that? And I would say, yeah, well, I pretty much have seen all of them, but... Um, that I would say that that's pretty much how I see the history of Taiwan uh, of c- c- the history of the cinema of Taiwan. Yeah, especially you mentioned this in this overview of the uh, Taiwanese cinema, the different political context, and also you mentioned linguistic diversity, different thematic uh, concerns as well. And also, uh, I think one of the uh, definitely you mentioned is about the different media and platform. So mm-hmm. earlier, it's uh, uh, go to theater and a different film festival, but now we have the whole different uh, Netflix and other uh, media platform for circulation and also for viewing as well. So uh, with this, and uh, you already mentioned a little bit about the Taiwan new wave, especially in the 80s to early 90s. So now um, can you say more about what is uh, new? about the Taiwan new wave, and then some of the directors and film that you would like to introduce to us? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question because um, I sometimes people get, get confused and I would still receive questions like, they assume they see the word term new and also being that the book um, just came out there is this confusion that they're not sure whether if I'm looking at the new wave movement back in the 80s or the newer cinema, which I just mentioned in the post-2008 commercial genre, popular cinema. They would thought that um, I am writing about what I, I think the term contemporary would be probably more appropriate mm. and, and, and better to call it new cinema because Taiwan new cinema is a very specific term. There's also a lot to be said about, and you know, Hong Bojing and his monograph has also covered this extensively and, and so much in depth about film studies in colleges, universities, and, and film history books, textbooks, especially the one written by Wardwell and Thompson, that it all they often 
people know Taiwanese cinema. People outside of Taiwan knew Taiwan cinema if they were studying film in an academic way. But at the same time, um, their their knowledge of Taiwan cinema is also being restricted to this new wave movement. And these are the canonical films, but because there's also there's there's more. Uh, they share the aesthetics value and with the, the independent art house values that are tied to these films and to these special expressions. But at the same time, it seems like there is a gap between films came before Taiwan New Cinema and films came after Taiwan New Cinema. So that's something that you know I did uh, talk about in, in this book. Um, but also the new here... I am strictly referring to um, the new wave movements that you were seeing in almost in most countries as well, that, that they would use the term, the new cinema movement, um, many would, would trace it back or acknowledge the French new wave as a practice that started out these type of filmmaking and ways of approaching films and the different uh, providing a different kind of viewing experience. There are, in, in some way, there's an anti-Hollywood, anti-studio filmmaking style that's happening. But also, you know, anyone knows the French New Wave history would know um, these filmmakers, Truffaut and Godard, they started out as film critics. So there's also something about these using, these films are intellectual, intellectually made. They're very, they're conscious of, of both the process of the films, but also everything that's surrounding the film culture. So I guess I'm digressing a little bit, but we can come back to this as well. Another way to look at new cinema and Taiwanese cinema is it's often been pitted against films that came before, which was healthy realism. And healthy realism, as just mentioned, were, you know, the series of films that were big budget films, actually. They were produced by uh, the Central Motion Picture Corporation, and it was also the nationalist government's attempt of they were trying to create these films that are competing against or anti-socialist against the, the films that, that were made in China and by Chinese mailenders. They also wanted to showcase and promote this image of harmonious and healthy Chinese diaspora that now they are living in Taiwan because after the defeat and the civil war and they came to the island um, and also to educate or, or to, to promote the use of Mandarin language. And then the Taiwan New Cinema came at a time where they were the, the natives writers like Zhu Tianwen. They were, inf- they were influential and really instrumental in inspiring filmmakers and screenwriters to create works that took an inward look at themselves, at their own identity. And of course, it's also at times, you know, very fraught, complicated identity. But there was this strong inclination to incorporate native elements and themes into this work. Language is definitely very obvious in terms of both moving away from being dominated by Mandarin and rather uh, a mix of Taiyu and uh, Hokan and, you know, other more of a local dialect languages, a mix of 
all these native languages that are being used and incorporated in, in these films. And most importantly, it's it's also about, you know, reconsidering and bringing back a theme of homeland. And the land is, is not looking toward China, the mainland China, but rather being able to reconcile their current situation and somewhat for, for the Chinese exiles, perhaps um, this hopelessness that they have to settle on this island. All right. And then, um, so this is, you, as you mentioned, this, uh, if we will break or break through uh, from the previous uh, film, and then this uh, emphasis on the native experience, especially how they really lived in Taiwan, rather than this diasporic sentiment that center on this kind of homeland discourse toward China in the previous uh, filmmaking, uh, also production as well. So this new or this kind of break uh, from the previous production, but now I want to sort of also unpack the second key words in there, that is Taiwan. And as you mentioned, there are different development in this uh, Taiwan new wave. And then so what should we understand the uh, Taiwanisness in Taiwan new wave or about Taiwan new wave as the island itself is so diverse. And as you mentioned, the Chinese diasporic communities as well, but also native islanders. And now we have new migrants as well. Yeah, um, it's easy and, and then also complicated to answer this question um, because the identity of Taiwan and the, the status of, of this nation state is contested on, on many levels. It's economically very stable, very advanced, very first world, but at the same time, it's unstable in terms of the country with its official name is Republic of China. It's still not recognized or, or acknowledged officially in the international arena. And this all has to do a lot to do with, again, you know, the Nationalist Party, um, KMT, that they were defeated during the civil war with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party thereby created their the new nation called People's Republic of China. So you have the two China problem. You have, in essence, two places that for the longest time, from the KMT's perspective, on both sides are arguing and fighting for who's the real China here because the Republican era um, was established in the mainland, not in Taiwan. And Taiwan has always been um, really forgotten and marginalized um, and, and not an important um, island in, throughout the Qing dynasty. And then uh, I would say things got really complicated when the Chinese exiles came to this island and, you know, there's all this conflict and this confusion of whether people would identify as Taiwan or as Chinese. And this Chinese is connected and cannot be separated from the mainland. If we come back to these films, it is very important that these films do highlight both these lived experience, but also different socioeconomic classes and generation problems that were not so much explored 
were in in many ways perhaps suppressed and healthy realism. So these films were not afraid to explore really their own life lived experience and also the change of times. These films were relatively low budget. I talked about the language, but there's also one thing in terms of the technical part that these films were very, and I argue this in my book, um, these filmmakers, these screenwriters, producers as well, they're very internationally minded. They wanted to make the films that they were already setting out to send their films to film festivals worldwide. They wanted to use this opportunity to be able to to promote a different kind of identity and a different expression and different ways, uh, creative ways of making films. So even though these were relatively low budget compared to healthy realisms and other films that were produced in Taiwan, these group of newcomers, these younger generation filmmakers from professionals, they wanted to they wanted to move on from shooting films on 60 millimeter onto the standard, which is a widescreen 35 millimeter. And that is also, you know, a great push um, in terms of setting up a new standards in uh, Taiwan's film industry. Mm-hmm. And then now, uh, especially you talk about uh, the development and also the context about Taiwanese wave cinema and also its production as well. I was wondering how these films, I mean, particularly Taiwanese wave films, uh, is uh, perceived uh, in the island and also uh, outside of the island. Yeah, that's a really good question. That is something that I unpacked, I would say, throughout the book. That was what one of the main focus that I started with how these films, how they were received at film festivals, but also I looked at aftermath. Um, So what was happening on site, what was happening in in terms of how the curators, the programmers, they perceive these films and they're really excited about the new wave and the new trend. But there's also, again, a fraught relationship with domestic viewers and how the domestic audiences don't necessarily understand why these relatively more abstract films, for example, Ho Xiaoxian's A City of Sadness, that's a film that it's supposedly, or it's, it's being marketed and branded as a film about the February 28th massacre, but aligned with uh, Ho Xiaoxian's a tour style. The film is very subdued. Um, it doesn't. It's it, it addresses important questions about these conflicts and these political oppression, but never in a never in a direct way. It's 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 hidden. It's throughout through layers, through scribbles. You know, always hinted at, but never really explicitly explained. So Taiwanese audiences were often confused by these films and couldn't really understand why these films were being praised and being lauded at film festivals. Especially when these films won awards, then they, when these films were screened in Taiwan, they really couldn't understand what was... uh, what was so interesting about these films that that were actually difficult for them to understand. And the critics themselves, too, that there's also a lot of debates uh, between the different camps of, of writers and 
I also suggest that it's not always the, entirely the case, but sometimes it's also there's an underlying illogical, different illogical positions and political positions that influence these dissensions among the critics. So that was part of what I was interested in when I started the book project, that I want to, in a way, trace the routes and the routes and really to travel the movement of these films and the reception. So it, it is a different way of, and in terms of in this area of film festival studies, that I'm not necessarily looking at festival as an object and um, combing through the many, many vast archival documents, but really focusing on what was happening there, but also what's happening, uh, what's happening abroad, but also what's happening at home. Right. And then especially you mentioned that all this uh, different responses, right? And then whereas these films are uh, received and also uh, receive award and very good recognition uh, internationally at film festival, but domestically on the island, uh, the audience seems to be sort of still trying to understand why there's all this uh, 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 the, the achievement that these films are made internationally. So with this different responses, I uh, was wondering whether you can also uh, talk about the Taiwan new cinema and especially uh, Taiwan in a way that how does these films uh, reconfigure or configure nation and especially in relation to Taiwan's multi-layer colonial and post-colonial histories. As you mentioned, we have the Japanese colonizer and later on the nationalist regime as well. So how does the, the new cinema, they tackle this uh, uh, very politically charged term and also notion of nation in their production and representation? Okay, well, uh... It might be easier. I mean, I can I can keep discussing about the political implications, um, the social economic background, and also the development of Taiwan was rapidly develop, developing during its time. So it also aligns with the economic development of the country. But I also think it might be easier if we can get to some concrete examples, because part of what I was doing in this book is that, well, first of all, I have been interested in or been inspired by Edward Said's traveling theory and also James Clifford's traveling cultures. So like, like I previously mentioned that there's an interest of looking at circulation, there's interest of looking at reception, but also analyzing the visual styles, analyzing the film as an object itself, right? But it's, it's important to look at the mobility and the movements of these object of study, pointing to the routes and routes, but also in, in, in terms of thinking about movement as both the course that I've been tracing, but it's also, when I use the word new, you know, it's not only connected to the global new wave movements, but you also suggest a change of direction. Again, it's it's going back to discussions about movement itself. So on that note, because of this contested identity of, of what is Taiwan and how do we compete with, or how do we think about Taiwan in relation, we're not 
in relation to Chineseness is has always been, you know, such a huge hot topic. It's really at the core of how we identify. Uh, for some people, whether if they identify as Taiwanese or not, it, there's just so much discussions, extended discussions that has to be made about Taiwan. But at the same time, it's also important that if can we look at Taiwan without without situating the political messiness that we have with China, and and particularly the Xi Jinping um, administration, they are still continuing this hostility towards Taiwan. They consider Taiwan as a breakaway province. They would never wanted to recognize. Knowledge ever Taiwan as a fully independent de jure country when it is a country because we have our own government system and there's also simply put there this on one side you have a capitalist society on the other side you have a, a communist a socialist society or not anymore but then we have our own president. But let me bring it back to the examples I have in the book because the book is structured with two parts, and we've already talked about the first part. And I think um, leaping, you're you're trying to segue into the the second part of the book, which I listed: street filmmakers, uh, Ho Xiaoxian, Taminao, and MDC, and they each represent and body you know different interesting case studies. Um, Ho Xiaoxian. Was born in China, but relocated with his family. Were immigrated to Taiwan very early on. I think at age three or age five. So he he's being upheld as his films promotes and celebrates local natives Taiwanese identity, but when in fact he has link with China and has identified as you know. Chinese on, on many levels, but we could also debate about what he means by Chinese or Chineseness. And then Taiwan is from Malaysia. He is uh, what we can call the Chinese diaspora living in Southeast Asia. So he was born in Malaysia, but he came to Taiwan to pursue a, a college degree in theater. And he just settled and、um, stayed in Taiwan. And his films, it's been, it's still continue to be、um, highly celebrated and recognized, especially at Western、um, Western European film festivals. And there's also so much to talk about. You know, he just did the the tour in the U.S. and also he recently again visit U.S. and in D.C. and it shot this the latest segment to his more. If, if we can use the, the term experimental but loosely, but more of the, the installation experimental moving image work called、uh, the Walker series. Oh, and also MDZ, who again, you know, has a, a career trajectory that's very similar to Taminao. But MD again is not Taiwanese, but in his films, it's also being represented and as a as a stand-in for、uh, Taiwan cinema at film festival circuit. And Midi was born in Myanmar, and he was benefited by the Taiwanese self-bound policy, and again came to Taiwan and during his high school years. And 
just stayed forever. And he's also a Chinese diaspora, meaning that they all um, identify themselves more as Chinese than the country, than their home country, the country that they were born in. So Taiman Yang would identify, identify himself as Chinese, um, even though he was born in Malaysia. And same for uh, Midi in, in, in Myanmar. And in the book, I also talk about um, the double marginalization that Midi experienced in Myanmar and in Taiwan as well, because uh, for these people, even though they, they identify as Chinese and the country, Taiwan speaks Mandarin, they don't, the people here don't consider Midi or, or, or Taiwanese as Taiwanese. So these Chinese immigrants or Taiwanese or uh, Chinese diaspora or Taiwanese diaspora, they contributed to how I think we should approach who are the Taiwanese people today. Great. Thank you, Beth. And especially for introducing the three uh, directors and how that navigate and also represent and also uh, problematize uh, what is Taiwan or what Taiwan means to them. But these three uh, directors, but there are all other different uh, talents and then also people working in the Taiwanese cinema. And in your chapter, you actually mentioned that women is also very significant participant as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about their participation and contribution? I mean, you know, what a great question. I wanted to take us back to, I guess, in, in, in a sense, behind the scenes of writing this book, that during the first round of peer review, sure, it was an obvious, it was clearly uh, a, a, a glaring, um, I don't want to say a problem because I don't think it's a problem, but one of the reviewers were concerned about the gender imbalance of, and in today's world, we are trying to highlight more whether if it's women filmmakers or um, you know women's involvement in in an industry in the film industry that's already heavily male dominated worldwide, and so it's not a situation just spe- specifically in Taiwan. Um, it's it's probably worse in in many places, other places. But interesting enough, during the second stage or second round of peer review. I receive a different kind of feedback and in a, in, in a very positive way um, that this reviewer pointed out he wasn't, he or she wasn't expecting um, that this book is a feminist project, perhaps because these terms were not being used or foregrounded in a more obvious way. But this person pointed out there is actually a very clear strat and through line um, that connects, if not all, most of the chapters together is this feminist perspective. So for example, in chapter two, I try to spend more time looking at the writings, especially by women critics, um, that were very much instrumental in being involved in the debates, but also the discourse of Taiwanese cinema. And, you know, not just critics, but other professionals like screenwriters, uh, Zhu Tianwen especially, she she is the sole screenwriter for all of Ho Xiaoxian's film, but one, but one exception. So in my Ho Xiaoxian's chapter, I looked at Café Lumière and uh, The Voyage to Bolon Cluj. So the French film, the Francophone film, 
that he made in Paris was the only exception that Zhu Tianwen wasn't involved at the the screenwriting stage. If I had more time, I I guess I wish that again I wrote the book basically throughout entire the entire COVID. So. Um, I, I couldn't travel, so I couldn't research more about it, but I would be really curious to find out why Julian Wen wasn't involved for that project, but all of these, uh, all of his other projects and his films. And also, if not the behind the scenes or production, I also looked at the characters because if I take the listeners back to uh, using Ho Xiaoxian as an example, Cafe Lumiere, Clifford, the Voyage de Bonhoeche, you have two protagonists they are basically just walking around the city, you know, very much conveys to uh, Charles Baudelaire's, the, the iconic, the central figure of the Flaneur. Um, the Flaneur is always male, but I try to apply the concept and looking, you know, how women are walking in the city and then what does that represent? Especially, again, the book, it's also, it's, it's, it's grounded in this this discussions about and thinking about mobility and movement. And I also wanted to talk about Amiti Z's filmmaking. His filmmaking style is what uh, Brian Bernard's called uh, covert filmmaking or secret filmmaking or guerrilla filmmaking because he it, it's it's very challenging to to get his production proved by the very corrupt bureaucratic militant government in Myanmar. And then also he has the advantage of he can pose as somebody because he he's he's a permanent resident. He he resides in Taiwan and also coming from Taiwan, which is a much developed wealthy country that I also talk about as in the book of, you know, for these Southeast Asian diaspora and these citizens, they look toward Taiwan, the ability to be able to either as a, as a migrant worker to be able to work in Taiwan, that is something that's very akin to what people back in the days would have with the U.S., the American dream. But for the Southeast Asian citizens, they would look to, towards Taiwan as, you know, they, it's their dream to travel, to move, to immigrate, um, also to study in, in Taiwan. So in that chapter, I also looked at this shift and this really obvious shift of Medici's filmmaking style that uh, Song Huiling also calls, you know, um, I guess in the continuation of the Taiwanese cinema style, even though he was not part of the cohort. In a cohort, uh, people usually think of Ho Xiaoxian, Edward Yang, Temi Leung, and An Li. And Medici was not really part of the initial movement, nor, you know, the second stage or second wave. But there is really a strong likeness, and, and particularly Midi actually has apprenticeship under Ho Xiaoxian, and both Ho Xiaoxian and Taiwan. So it's really not surprising that people would quickly recognize, oh, there's, there's some stylistic overlap or, or similarities. But then Song Huiling pointed out that there is what differentiates between Midi Z's films and Taiwan's films, even though there's there's a strong realist aspects to it and realism as a style, not realism as a realist but um, Medici's films has a very, very strong sonic component to it. And I remember there, I was also fortunate, maybe I think 2013, when Midi came to the 
when, when Mini came to New York at Asia Film Society, and I asked this question, I asked him about um, how his film, how, how these acoustic sounds and uh, different sound recordings that he picked up um, really becomes another character or a, a narrator in a sense that carries the stories throughout. So that's really, I'm setting this up to talk about his latest film. And by now the film has also been out for a few years. Uh, it's called Nina Wu. And Nina Wu is a film that's um, officially funded by the Taiwanese government. Media wasn't eligible for all the previous uh, state subsidy uh, funding for, for film production because the Chinese government required that it, at least two thirds of the film has to be shot in Taiwan. And maybe was doing these all this creative shooting, secret shooting, uh, pretending to be a tourist uh, using a DSLR, but actually making a film. And really quite surprisingly, if people seen his work, that it's, it's really hard to imagine that it was shot almost in an amateur way, but really, you know, real professionally done. But Nina Wu, compared to all his previous films, Nina Wu is actually considered as a more higher, uh, has higher production value, higher budget, and also really shifts from more of an ethnic and economic exploitation theme in his films to a sexual exploitation scene in this fiction film because this film co-written by uh Ukashi, who is the leading actress in this film but also in most of Midi's films uh, she wrote the first round of her screenplay by herself because she wanted to write about her own experience of being sexually assaulted and verbally assaulted in the film industry. So it was, um, it has been hailed as uh, a Me Too film, again, aligned with the global Me Too movement, but it's also fictional. So it, it was just taking her experience, but uh, transform it into something I would call more of a surrealist type of film. And visually, it's, it's also different. There's this departure from Midi's work. So if we go back to the thread of, in, in terms of how I connect these films and um, you know all male directors with women, I, I want to say that there is a you know, very strong feminist perspective throughout these work and also looking at the history. And I'm always curious both about archival findings, but also wonder, wondering who is writing the history. And it makes a difference when you place a more of a feminist lens and looking at these subjects and you would come up with different observations. So yeah, I think this is where I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, you study uh, the three directors and then also the different dimensions of their works. But um, is there anything that uh, you encountered through the process of writing this book that you didn't get to be included in the book or any, you know, the unexpected material that you encounter in the process of writing this book? Yeah, I wanted to talk about the epilogue because, again, that was during the second round of peer review that one of the reviewers felt like 
there's not a, a strong sense of closure. Um, we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but, uh, but technically I have two chapters on time now. So I have another chapter that explores how, how cinema travels to, again, I like to use the word travel, travels or being recited or recite, he, re, he recycled his work in, in art museums, art galleries, and how that created a different type of viewing experience and, and you know, challenges uh, um, provide a different kind of viewing experience for us. But the epilogue of this book wasn't, wasn't part of the writing plan. And I'm also really grateful that they pointed out it's something that's needed. And because it provides this opportunity to, to provide self-reflection at why am I writing this book? And um, so a, another um, film scholar um, was, was highly active and also, you know, very involved in writing about a lot about East Asian cinema, um, Tainel particularly. Colorado Murray, he commented that to me in person that, you know, he was surprised that the book has that personal angle, especially in the, the epilogue. It's, it, there's a personal angle to it. It's refreshing in that sense, because then I conclude by drawing Fiona Ron's example, uh, Fiona's film, her, her first feature film called American Girl. It was released in 2021, also available on Netflix currently, that I share the same, almost, almost identical experience of having lived in the U.S., but then being repatriated back into to Taiwan and having to deal with it's more than reverse cultural shock, but really have to deal with all these questions about identity, language, cultural norms, and or things that I'm, I, I wasn't used to, or things that were very presented as so, a, a big source of conflict uh, for me between among family members, but also um, as a teenager growing up in Taiwan, that wasn't a really an easy time. So it wasn't just, you know, about that self-reflection because I, I brought in the example of American Girl because American Girl in many ways also share, you know, certain cinematic language, but also really the sentiments, the themes that she explore in this film that's akin to Hou Xiaoxian and, and most strongly, I would argue, Edward Young. Um, again, that was a case study that uh, an author that wasn't um, included in this book, but Edward Young was very well-known Taiwanese cinema figure. So I pointed out the premise of American Girl shares similarities with one of Edward Young's film called uh, English translation is Taipei story, the Chinese Qingmei Zuma. So it, it's, it's also about, you know, these returned People have been living overseas in the U.S. and returns to Taiwan and how they grapple with all these different emotions and challenges in their life that um, audience today, even though American Girl was did quite well at box offices, but there were still audiences who were bored by this film and said the film felt too real and too much realism that they didn't really like that. They would still prefer something that's more, you know, MCU-like, something really provides an escapism. So again, that's a constant underlying source of conflict for people who can't quite understand 
the new cinema style and it's always comparing these kind of a tourist inclined new cinema to the popular cinema, which Tamil often, it was very frustrated with the Taiwanese audience for this particular reason. All right. So uh, thank you for uh, sharing the different chapters and concern and the theme about uh, you analyzing your book. And now uh, we will just uh, kind of curious about what you are working on right now or what your next project will be. Um, I mentioned I briefly hold a position at UCSB and I was affiliated with the Center for Taiwan Studies um, at UCSB. So I sometimes I am ambivalent and concerned about, and this is not a complaint, but this is really an honest ambivalence about how I am on the one hand, yes, a Taiwan cinema specialist, but I also see myself as a world cinema scholar. So I would say that in the future projects, I probably wanted to return to the world cinema interest. Um, like I said, I've also published an article, an article on Agnes Barda, who I would also argue that should be more widely situated in the conversations about the French New Wave and bring her back into the boys' club because the French New Wave again, you know, to many is really very much a boys' club. Her husband is part of was part of um, the cohort, but um, she is such a, a unique figure and also really has a weight in the French New Wave movement. With that being said, I have an article on Bong Joon-ho, um, Bong Joon-ho's first feature, Barking Dogs Never Bite, which I co-written with Bonnie Tilland. That's going to come out, uh, I mentioned that before, that's going to come out very soon. And then I also have, since probably after writing this book, but maybe during writing this book, um, I've also both published and also received invitation to continue to write about film festival. So um, a, a book chapter uh, called To Be Continued, Women Make Waves International Film Festival, which is the Women Make Waves, the largest women uh, festival about women filmmakers, however you want to define women, whatever it's identified or, or biologically born. I have this, this writing that's going to be included in the Rutledge Companion to Asian Cinemas. So that's forthcoming. Um, and then lastly, I, I think that I, I am currently paying close attention to uh, Sundance Film Festival in Asia that's happening right now because it's taking place for the first time in Taipei, Taiwan, as opposed to previously was, was held in Jakarta, Indonesia. I think there's a lot can be said um, about newer things are happening in, in Taiwan and in particular. It's very exciting to see uh, Sundance Film Festival in Taiwan and also, you know, they partner with Women Make Waves, again, you know, the, the largest uh, festival about women, women filmmakers and, and uh, women subjects in Taiwan and also in East Asia. So I would most likely be continuing my writing some film festival studies. 
Right. So, uh, Beth, uh, that sounds great project. And especially we're excited to read your uh, forthcoming work and uh, also uh, more of your work in the future as well. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. It's and been I a was pleasure to be able to talk to you. And I also want to thank our audience for staying with us till the end. I hope everybody's taking good care. Stay safe. See you next time. Goodbye.